Hello, welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen. I'm back with Tim and Matt, and we are today uh, joined by Dr. Connor Harper, who is uh, joining us from uh, close to where he just finished his doctorate. I assume you're up uh, in the Bay Area still, Connor, at uh, UC Berkeley? That's correct, yes. Yeah, so just uh, finished your doctorate in, um, is it physical chemistry? What is your actual, uh, what is the title on your doctorate? So, yeah, the, the program is physical chemistry. Um, yeah, although, right. yeah, that's a, a broad area to be sure. Still. Yeah, I'm sure. There's always a lot covered there. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about, I think, more of your specialty today is the subject of the podcast. But yeah, you're, you've got a doctor from UC Berkeley doing, are you starting postdoc work there? Is that what you're doing, Connor? Yes, that's that's correct. I've stayed on as a postdoc in the in the same laboratory. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, we're happy to have you on today, Con- uh, Doctor Harper. And uh, <laughs> of those, of uh, our- all right, all right, you can dispense with it. <laughs> I'm glad you. you know. For those of our, you the scene time- from Spies Like Us, the doctor, <laughs> doctor, doctor. <laughs> For the, those longtime listeners of our podcast, about a year ago, we had on another Dr. Harper, and they are related, though Connor doesn't claim relation, I think, anymore. Yeah, no, we're, we're estranged. <laughs> uh, right. So anyway, um, lots of good Harper knowledge coming to bear in this podcast. So this today, we're going to be talking about mass spectrometry, which, uh, which Connor is got uh, quite a fair amount of research done in that area, so he's going to be uh, walking us through what exactly mass spectrometry is. So once again, uh, this is a layman, learn it from a layman podcast. So Connor, if you could just kind of very simply introduce, introduce the topic and then we can work towards kind of a, kind of where, where the, you know, where you, um, you know, have spent your time in research, but if you could just give us a quick definition of what mass spectrometry is, that would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. So mass spectrometry is, uh, you know, to put it simply, weighing things, particularly very small things like, you know, atoms, molecules, even larger molecules and so forth. So it's, you know, the tiny molecules version of, of, of a scale. Uh, yeah. Uh, the basis of mass spectrometry is that you know, everything has mass. It's kind of one of these fundamental properties of things that are. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, typically, in most forms of mass spectrometry, the, the, another fundamental property of uh, matter comes into play, which is charge. Um, we, through some kind of method, and some kind of ionization, which is taking mass and uh, imparting some kind of charge, whether it be positive, negative, um, and then we discriminate uh, different molecules from each other, things with different mass by their mass to charge ratios, typically. So you can imagine maybe that if you have something that has you know, a certain amount of charge and you fly it past something that's you know, an electric field, a magnetic field, right? Um, it's going to react to that, it's gonna move. And um, if it's something really heavy, it's not going to move as quickly or have as much of its momentum changed um, as something that's quite light. And so that's the basis of all of the, the measurement that we're doing with that is the basis of mass spectrometry. We're weighing things by um, 
charging them up and then subjecting to them to some kind of electric or magnetic fields and then seeing what happens, you know. So you have like, a, sorry, not to interrupt. No, 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 go, on, go, go ahead. On the, on the other side of the, the magnetic field, then you have some type of receptor that's able to tell where, where those elements land? Or? Right. So it can be where they land. You know, you might measure a deflection. You might measure, you know, how uh, long it took them to get there um, when they're being accelerated in one of these fields. Or you might measure, I mean, there's, you know, this is the basis of, like, you know, there's about 20, 30, I don't know, even know how many different types of mass spectrometry. We have a whole alphabet soup that we uh, um, um, use to describe all these different methods. But yeah, that's that's exactly right. We analyze them, as we say, on the basis of electric magnetic field, and then have some kind of detector method that you know actually measures the difference um, that happened because we made them go past some kind of magnetic or electric field. Can it be used on any type of ion then, just as long as it's an ionized particle, it's useful? Yeah, that, that's right. So anything, if you can put a charge on it, you can weigh it with mass spectrometry. Okay. How long has this been around? Is this is uh, relatively recent stuff? Or I, I imagine you have to have pretty um, delicate instruments to measure these things. You know, not quite as much as you think. I mean, the kind of, there was this kind of a scientific renaissance, right, in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, and mass spec is also a, a, a technology that came to light as people were beginning to really understand, uh, you know, what atoms and molecules really were. The interest in, okay, differentiating them was also, you know, came up with that. And so, um, you know, people had some ideas about it. You know, I think of Thompson in the 1800s um, when he was doing a lot of other you know, kind of famous words work with cathode rays and other things like that. Um, and then uh, in the early 1900s, more and more techniques were developed. And then one of the very famous uh, and one particular type of mass spectrometer called a sector, magnetic sector mass spectrometer, was developed as part of the Manhattan Project. Uh, for separating uranium isotopes, because, you know, that's important for, you know, got to get that U-235, not that U-238, so. <laughs> for our non-layman listeners, or for rather, for our layman listeners, U-235 <laughs> is the one that explodes. Yes, that's the one you make the big bombs out of, and U-238 U is still quite is, useful, honestly. But. Yeah, use it for, like, centerpiece on your table. <laughs> Anything you well, want to be really heavy. Nice <laughs> heavy stuff. It's a, it's a bulky table. <laughs> Paperweight? Um, um, okay. But yeah, and then more and more methods as our understanding of magnetic and electric fields and how to manipulate them has become more and more sophisticated over the years. There's always, you know, a new set of mass spectrometry measurements and instruments that really come as a result. And, you know, a couple of people won some Nobel Prizes for it, even, in, the, in 1990, a Nobel Prize for, for work done in 1990, the Nobel Prize in, like, one of the 2000s. I can't remember when it was. But, um, you know, people won, won Nobel Prizes for, for developing these kinds of instruments and techniques. So nice. it's definitely a, a big deal in as far as, and you know, I called myself a physical chemist earlier, but really, 
um, in pr practice, I'm a so-called analytical chemist, meaning I build tools that other people use to measure things. Does that make sense? I don't build yeah. houses, I build hammers. <laughs> right. So you said that there, this, the mass spectrometry tools are used across lots of different uh, applications. Uh, what ones do you have most of your familiarity with and what what is like the everyday use of the of mass spectrometry in, in your field and the, what you work with? Sure, so I, I'm in a kind of uh, slightly more niche field of, of part of mass spectrometry and then I'm you know actually in the instrumentation design part of mass spectrometry. I'm trying to come up with new mass spectrometry tools and a lot of my work has been you know very ironically I know uh, been centered around weighing heavy, and I'll throw it heavy in air quotes there, uh, really heavy molecules, you know, like viruses or uh, large biological, you know, complexes or things along those lines, which, you know, in mass spec terms are just absolute colossal molecules, right? I mean, <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're microscopic still, of right. course. <laughs> um, because that's a, a, a place where mass spectrometry still has a lot of challenges and uh, shortcomings. Uh, when it comes to small molecules, like you might use in you know a college level, you know organic chemistry class or something, it's, you know there's always a little unit on mass spec. Mostly there, they're looking at smaller molecules where um, we've pretty much figured out you know how to do it and how to uh, weigh these things with a tremendous deal of accuracy and precision to the point that you know. There are mass spectrometers that exist that can tell the difference between one, the two molecules that are exactly the same, except one is, you know, an electron short, literally weighing electrons with with this uh, stuff. And and for the layman out there, an electron is about a thousand times lighter than than a proton and neutron, the other fundamental particles, um, which is, you know, they're always pretty small. <laughs> <laughs> A question, Connor, can, or Dr. Harper, can, uh, is, is there, can you get any more like refined in weighing than that? So yes. Um, and without going into a painstaking amount of detail, um, you can also measure the difference in mass of a molecule that's in a so-called excited state versus a ground state. So without getting too quantum physics-y, um, there's molecules that have just been hit by light and as a result they're more energetic than ones that haven't just been hit by light and you can actually measure the difference in mass that corresponds to that energy right Einstein's famous relation E equals mc squared right energy is mass mass is energy oh wow you can yeah, actually cool. measure that fine so uh, yeah that so-called so fine structure with, question with does that mean does that mean that I'm heavier in sunlight than in shadow? Uh, sure. <laughs> you, or, you know, your body is a very dynamic right. system, Tim. You're also breathing and all that other stuff. And what, what really yeah. are you when it comes so, to, you know? So all of particles. my uh, wrestler students who are trying to cut weight to make their way in, they um, okay. I should tell them. <laughs> this is why we don't invite Tim to all of the podcasts. <laughs> Well, shucks. I think it's a fair question. Now, I think you, your students would have better luck with relativity, and they should just try and um, stay stationary and sedentary as much as possible because, of course, mass at rest is lighter than mass 
or has you know less mass. Than, okay. Than, than Good. Constant motion. So. <laughs> These are the tips that you don't learn about in your regular uh, podcast. Okay. Oh boy, I've gone really far down this rabbit hole. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Let's. Um, so you were telling us about the the ways that you use it. So you you use it to differentiate viruses and those types of things. So what um, what what is the like the practical use of of that type of mass spectrometry? Um, is that useful in the medical field, or where, where do people use that type of mass spectrometry? So the kind I'm developing in particular. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, we're targeting a few few different uh, uh, areas for applications. One, you know, when it comes to the viruses, um, there's you may have heard it's a buzzword sometimes in the news of gene therapy. Yeah. So the idea there is. You know, viruses are really good at getting into cells and then hijacking cells to make more of themselves, right? So the idea is, you know, with gene therapy is let's steal a virus's ability to get to cells really well. And instead of it having some genetic material, RNA or DNA inside that hijacks the cell, let's instead make that uh, medicinal RNA or DNA. You know, you can think, for example, of genetic diseases, right, um, where there's something, that a gene or something that has some kind of either error or, uh, you know, replication problem, and as a result, you know, a disease manifests, right? Are, are, are we with me so yeah, far? Yeah, I'm following you, sure. And so now imagine if you could send in a virus that could hijack your cell and teach it to not have that particular you know, defective DNA sequence, that gene, and instead just put in, you know, something uh, that works. And what, well then, what have you accomplished? Well, you've cured the disease at the most fundamental level, right? It's no longer a disease anymore because your cells and DNA no longer have that in their kind of genome anymore. You don't have the, the ability to manifest the disease because, frankly, the code isn't there anymore. Sure. So there's a lot of applications of these, you know, and that's one example. You know, these gene therapies. Uh, there's a few different ways they're actually um, being attempted to being used and are being used. You know, there's a few diseases that have actually been uh, cured at this point. Uh, it's kind of a burgeoning field right now. It's got a lot of hype behind it. So uh, I'm missing the link, maybe. Okay, yeah. Uh, so now, now let me okay. get to the link. So now imagine you're the person that's, you know, take taken these viruses and are trying to put the genetic material in well before you can give anything to a person you have to test the crap out of it right yeah <laughs> yes and so um you're trying a whole bunch of different variables and you want at the end of the day to get something that's very reliable right so that when you're you know um, making your initial set of the, these gene therapy you know virus particles containing medicine you need them to be pure you need to make sure that there's nothing else weird going on and so you come to me with my special mass spectrometer that's good at measuring these really heavy things, and I quantify that for you. You give me a sample, and I say, oh, yeah, two-thirds of your particles are empty and safe and inert, and one-third of them actually have the right cargo inside. So, yeah, you, you did a good job with your, your synthesis, whatever you want to call it, your culture of, of, of these, these viruses. Um, or I can come back to you and say, wow, you've got a lot of other junk floating around. 
in here it looks like this your RNA or DNA that you're trying to use as a medicine didn't get incorporated in there and so you're you're in trouble this this sample's not going to work for you so it's a it's a tool hmm. like I said it's a, okay. allows people to characterize their work um, and their different you know variables that they're trying to change and it allows them to do them really quickly it quickly because mass spectrometry in general is is fast Right. So what are the challenges you run into? Um, you mentioned that, that when you're doing larger, you know, molecules or viruses or whatever, you, you run into some issues that you don't run into with, you know, smaller ion uh, mass spectrometry. What, so what, what do you have to deal with in, in those cases? Sure. So the biggest thing is that um, big molecules, which I know is an oxymoron, um, are naturally rather heterogeneous, so they're they're not all exactly the same, right? Whereas if I you know think of my you know oxygen molecule in the air, right? It's O2 and it's O2 every single time, and it weighs exactly a certain amount, and that's always true, right? But now I have this big complex you know virus, right, with millions or yeah maybe hundreds of thousands, anyways, of individual atoms, right? The chance that all of those have come together in exactly the same way, and you know, uh, it, it's you know it's zero pretty much. Every single sure. one of them is going right. to be a little different. There's isotopes. There's just slightly different protein modifications. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff that starts going so on. Every right? so, virus is like a snowflake. Yeah, yeah, to some extent, yeah. Okay. And and uh, the thing is, then you know, I told told you at the beginning that we we try and measure everything on the basis of this mass to charge ratio, right? And so uh, if we want to measure uh, one of these big viruses, um, unfortunately, well, with, with a few exceptions, there's always a few exceptions, um, in order to not have that mass to charge ratio be some uh, ridiculously high and hard to measure number, you know, uh, we need to put lots of charges on it. Uh, so say I have something that weighs 1 million mass units, just to throw out a nice big number there. Um, if I only have one charge, my mass to charge ratio is a million, right? Sure. Uh, that that that's challenging to measure for various reasons. It's um, if you're trying to measure it on the basis of speed, something that has a mass to charge ratio of a million is going to go slow as it can be, and you know that's hard to measure. If you're measuring it by running it into something, which is a common way to make measurements, um, again, it's going so slow that it kind of runs into things and then just bounces off <laughs> instead of you know hitting hard enough to make an electrical signal right um, and so uh, at the end of the day what happens so the way around that is okay let's put 100 charges on it then oh now the master charge ratio is only 10,000 that's more workable the problem is now I've got this really heterogeneous big molecule and some of them might have 100 charges some have 101 102 103 104 this wide charge distribution. And now I've got a really complex looking mass spectrum, which is what you know the data is, right? With mass on the x axis and some kind of intensity on the y. Because there's going to be peaks, you know, signals for each one of those different charge states and each one of those different weights. And you know, colloquially we call that when this gets really complex, we call it the, the lump of death, you know. It's <laughs> 
it becomes really difficult to pull the actual mass information that this thing weighed a million out of this really complex set of peaks. So so many peaks, in fact, that it just becomes no longer a set of peaks. It becomes a lump. Um, so how do I get around that? How it makes my you know uh, brand of mass spec special? Well, we don't measure just the mass charge ratio. We also measure just the charge. Um, and we do that by flying our ion of interest through a tube, a, a metal tube. And as it flies through the tube, it's positively charged or, or whatever, generally positively charged. The electrons in the metal move with that, right? Um, as it, they follow it. Um, that's an induced current. Current is something we can measure. So we measure the charge as well, as well as the mass to charge ratio. And if you do some multiplication there, you know, for the layman out there, M over Z, mass over charge, times charge, well, the charge cancels out. You've just got mass directly. Nice. No more mass to charge ratios, just mass. So is that even technically mass spectrometry anymore then? Is, or is that like a it is. I'd argue it's more truly mass spectrometry than all those mass to charge spectrometry people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So is, uh, you know, obviously that's my own personal bias <laughs> there. But but the idea there is yeah, we need to uh, cut to the chase and get straight to the the thing we're trying to actually measure. And the way huh. to do that is to make two measurements. Okay. Dr. Harper, have we stumbled into a hot-button controversy here? <laughs> Not in particular. So my my brand of mass spectrometry, charge detection mass spectrometry, we're very literal uh, namers of our techniques. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's, it's new. It's new. It's burgeoning. Uh, starting to get, get a lot of uh, attention in the past five to ten years or so. Um, because the nice thing about it is that, you know, uh, at its most fundamental level, it's, uh, or I guess it is a more fundamental level of measurement, right? And if you want more information, uh, you always have to go, uh, more and more, uh, fundamental, right? right. Um, if you're measuring something very generally, you only get a general kind of, a sense of information back, but if you're measuring something at a very, uh, I guess, basic level, you get much more diversity of information, even if it's a little more complicated as well. The machines that you use then to do that type of mass spectrometry, are mm -hmm. they completely different? Are you just repurposing the, like the machine, or do you have to build a whole new you know, mass spectrometry, mass spectrometer, whatever you call those machines? A spectrometer. That's the one I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so in this case, yeah, we built a new one. Uh, we built it, you know, I mean, using a lot of the same parts. Mind you, the part I'm talking about is just the detection, right? I'm charge detection. But the previous stages can be pretty similar to a lot of other mass spectrometers in terms of, you know, managing your ions and getting them into the, getting them to the detector, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of sure. the pipeline to there. Um, but yeah, the detector, and, and, and in my case, in the research lab, our instrument is 100% home-built, as we tend to say. Um, it's one-of-a-kind kind of thing. Um, and we're 
or building, starting to build another one, the, you know, the next generation, the newer and better one. We learned that we did some stupid things with the first one, so we're going to build a better second one. <laughs> That's how research goes, right? Yes. Awesome. Um, you mentioned that the um, the so this is an application for gene therapy. Is, is that most of the research that you're doing right now specifically for gene therapy? Are there other so, applications so, that you do? So certainly, I have yeah collaborators that are uh, you know active. You know, there's there are bio, bioengineering groups here at Berkeley, and there's quite a lot of uh, new companies in gene therapy that are also conveniently here in the Bay Area <laughs> um, that we were working with and starting to work with. Um, but there's other people. I mean, you know, people study viruses for reasons other than gene therapy. You know, we have uh, collaboration going with a, a biochemistry group here who's just studying uh, viruses um, and virus packaging, I guess you could call it, the capsids they're called, um, for other other. Uh, applications and also you know just to totally uh, go away from the bio applications although those are probably the dare I say most potentially game-changing sure. um, there's also things like you know nanoparticles you probably have heard in the news mm. buzzwords like oh carbon nanotubes and you know I don't know nano yeah. this nano that everyone wants to talk about nano right well nano is right in that size window that my instrument is uh, effective at measuring. So say I have some sample from you know one of the groups doing nanoparticles here at Berkeley, and they want to know, hey, we tried to make these, but we want to know kind of the distribution of sizes of these things. You know, what's the smallest one we got? What's the biggest one we got? What's the average? And I can run a sample of that on my mass spectrometer and and characterize that for them. All your average ones, 20 nanometers across based on its weight. And your smallest one's 10 nanometers and your biggest one's 100, something like that. So, so there are other applications, certainly, um, even if uh, the biological ones are probably the, the, the largest, just because, you know, people care about health and medicine, as it turns out. So. <laughs> and, and you might imagine in, in the current pandemic, the right. uh, emphasis on virus research and virus characterization is you know, uh, at an all-time high. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so mass spectrometry uh, in, in your area is is obviously you know growing and and pushing new boundaries in, in the purely physical, uh, purely chemical area. You said that you know you, you've got it pretty well nailed down. We we can measure missing electrons and things like that. Is there any like you know, research in that area that you're aware of that uh, you know, is taking things to a new level, or you know, what's what's the state of the art there in in the uh, just measuring you know, simple ions? Sure, sure. So, I mean, there's still a lot of you know. I said we've got it pretty well nailed down, um, but you know, that's if you're doing one one thing at a time, right? But say you're you know, uh, some oil baron or whatever, <laughs> and you want to measure the kind of profile of hydrocarbons in your, your crude oil, right? Because uh, that has a lot of uh, impact in terms of, you know, what can you make out of it, right? You know, what mm -hmm. kind of fractions are you going to get? What kind of, you know, 
what price can you ask for it, right? Sure. Um, so if you got, you know, yeah. So so mass spectrometry, there's still a lot of use there where, you know, some of these really high-resolution, very precise mass spectrometers are there pushing, you know, how many compounds can we simultaneously characterize using mass spec and, you know, 10, 20,000 simultaneous hydro, uh, you know, uh, characterization of, of all the little different hydrocarbons. And for the layman out there, uh, hydrocarbons, right, just carbon uh, chains with hydrogen hanging off in various ways. And that's the basis of fuels, plastics, oil, um, yeah, a, a lot of things. <laughs> okay. So Along so, those lines, then, mm -hmm. I guess I don't even necessarily have a good idea of, like, how big a mass spectrometer would be and how 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 widespread they are like would would any any you know lab have a mass spectrometer or is that something very specialized a specific uh you know rich companies yeah, like yeah. How no no it's it's a great question so there's all sorts of uh flavors of of mass spectrometers and the answer is you know to kind of give you an idea this is a multi-billion dollar industry of mass spectrometer sales and you know, commercial mass spectrometers. You know, there's four or five billion, you know, giant companies that, you know, make their living just building and selling mass spectrometers of various yeah. types. Okay. Um, because pretty much every, you know, kind of uh, laboratory, be it, you know, uh, in uh, both in, in biology or in chemistry, um, there's going to be at least... Uh, uh, I'll call it a you know a cheap, <laughs> cheap thing. You know, only the price of a car, uh, right. level mass spectrometer. I guess you know a benchtop one, where they're generally called, um, everywhere. And you know any kind of factory for doing quality control or doing, uh, you know any kind of characterization of something that they're making. A mass spectrometer is just the gold standard as far as that's concerned. And so they probably have a few of them uh, lying around, if you will. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you've probably even seen one at the airport and you didn't know it, uh, you know, when the, the guy at the, the security line holds you up and says, oh, sorry, you know, you had something suspicious in your bags, and then he swabs your, uh, your luggage or whatever, and he puts it in a little machine. Oh, yeah, sure. That's an ion mobility uh, mass spectrometer, no doubt. Um, and then he's looking for, you know, signals, or the program is looking for signals corresponding to, you know, explosives or other dangerous substances, right? And then when it turns out it's just M&Ms, um, he's like, <laughs> all right, go, go on <laughs> with your day. <laughs> the, the, right, uh, <laughs> the right ionized form of M&Ms, right? You want M&Ms, what is it, 280? <laughs> Yes, yes, that's right. You need the proper isotopes. Yeah, <laughs> isotope. That's what it is. The mass spectrometer that that you built, the your custom one that you built for yourself, is that a different size on a different scale than the ones that you buy? You know, these Walmart variety, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah, we'll call the the just the five figure ones Walmart variety. <laughs> no, so yeah, mine. To be fair, another you know, advantage of this charge detection mass spectrometry method that we're kind of building up in, in my research lab and in a couple other laboratories around the country and across the world, I guess I should say, um, is that they're not, they don't require a 
colossal amount of uh, really precise machining or uh, expensive electronics. So they're like low six figures, for example. You know, we're building the next generation one. I submitted a purchase order for most of the parts just the other day, actually. And it was, you know, a little more than $100,000. Oh, that's fucking you're telling me it's low odds that we can start selling your mass spectrometers as learn it from a layman merchandise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I have to mark it up, so it's going to be 300k a pop. But you know, <laughs> but to get, be fair, you know, <laughs> some of these really high performance, you know, uh, high throughput, you know, mass spectrometers that have a lot of applications in other parts of biology. You know, looking at proteins or peptides or things like this, right? They're million-dollar machines, you know? Oh. They, um, they're arguably still worth every penny, but, yeah, they uh, can be much more expensive. Um, I guess, you know, if you want to... The more you want to engineer something, the more expensive you can make it. I'm sure there's uh, there's a few very, you know, dare I say, ac- of academic interest only, you know, the, the Rolls Royces of the <laughs> mass spectrometers, sure. um, you know, with giant magnets or whatever else that, you know, surely run bills into the tens of millions, no doubt. But uh, but I'd say the average mass spectrometer is somewhere between 10000 and a million dollars. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we won't be getting one for our uh, <laughs> our learner from a layman office anytime soon. No, pro- probably not something you're going to have in your house, but probably something your local hospital or your local, you know, university or your local, you know, I don't know decent-sized organization could easily have. Certainly in industry, they're ubiquitous. All right. How long does it take for, you said you, you, you're, build, you're building a new one after you found out the issues with the last one. What's, what's the time frame? What's, what's the process for getting a new mass spectrometer built and, and working? So, I mean, with a home-built mass spectrometer, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a do-it-at-your-own-pace kind of, kind of thing because you know you're you're building a prototype right and so you want to make sure that you build it right and so a lot of time is spent in kind of the design stage where you're trying to decide okay what what do i need to have in this piece of equipment in order to accomplish my ultimate goal um in 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 weighing something and so i mean over my entire you know graduate education and research experience i keep learning things i'm like oh it would be nice if we were able to do this, oh, it would be nice if we were able to do that. And kind of after uh, enough of those pile up, you go, man, we should just build a new one, you know, like tear down this old one. It's it's old. It's out of date. It's, you know, I know better now. Let's build the next thing. Um, but once you actually get to the point of like, OK, let's build it. You know, I got on a, a Zoom call with uh, an engineer who runs a, a little a little uh, a mass spectrometry kind of engineering company he builds a lot of parts right custom stuff and you know we sat down and over a course of a month or two you know meetings uh just hashed out the design um in in more exacting detail and then finally you know now submitted the money he's getting his the purchase order He's going to build it. It's probably actual physical machining and all that. You know, take a month or two. Then he'll send me all the parts, and I'll put them all together, you know, grown-up Lego style. <laughs> That'll take another month, maybe, or so. 
and then and then we'll figure out what's broken <laughs> we'll troubleshoot <laughs> and then eventually we'll get it up and running and so that's you know that's kind of the okay uh, so we're not talking timeline like, wise uh, goes it's not like something that is some but, huge giant and super sophisticated and sensitive i mean it is in some to some extent but it's not like you know a nuclear uh, reactor type of situation right it's not you know the the proton collider in you know right. Germany or germany or whatever with all that yeah. fancy alignment stuff going on yes so. okay so one more question for me and then matt and cam matt or tim could ask a question if they have one but um you mentioned uh, you're you know you're you're trying to get like kind of a more basic you know measurement just the mass as opposed to the mass and the charge or, or whatever um, mm -hmm. using that new method um, are there I guess are there state-of-the-art um, alternatives are there, are there other things people are exploring to, to, to measure um, or, or figure out the charge of, of particles that are different fundamentally than your your traditional mass spec type uh, pro, uh, machine Sure, sure. So maybe I should just give you kind of the the sampler of different mass spectrometry technologies that are kind of out there, right? There's a there's kind of a couple of families of these things. So um, for small molecules, uh, it's really easy to just give a small molecule one charge. You just slam it with an electron, and now it's got a charge. Um, um, so for those uh, the, the preferred kind of analyzers, we like to call them, the thing that actually differentiates things on the basis of their mass. Um, they use something called a quadrupole, which is just four metal rods that are um, given a kind of an AC, an RF radio signal that makes them you know, make a particular kind of magnetic field that, or, or excuse me, electric field that discriminates on the basis of mass. And I'm not going to go into the details on that because, frankly, I'm not, I'm not even that. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some heavy-duty physics and math going on there. Okay. Uh, but uh, so that's the you know uh, analyzer of choice for small stuff. For bigger stuff, um, there's kind of two, two options. There's frequency-based measurements. So you make something, an ion, oscillate in some way. Um, and then measure that frequency, and that frequency um, is usually related to the mass somehow. Or you can use a so-called time of flight, where you measure how long something takes to travel uh, a certain distance under a certain acceleration. So you might imagine, you know, uh, a semi truck, uh, you know, pushed by me, you, and Matt and Tim. Um, is going to start, you know, move a lot slower than some, you know, a Volkswagen Beetle uh, pushed by the same four people, right? Sure. And so by measuring how long, at the time of arrival of these different sized uh, particles, you know, you get the, the mass measurement. So it's just a, a timing. That's how you figure out how heavy oh. something is, how long they take to arrive. Um, all of these different methods kind of have their own pros and cons. Uh, time of flight things are good because um, technically, now not necessarily practically, but technically there's no upper mass limit because 
you can wait as long as you need to wait, right, for something to move along. Um, whereas frequency-based stuff, uh, if your thing has such a slow frequency that, you know, takes you hours to make the measurement, then you kind of, uh, yeah, well, that doesn't work out so well. <laughs> um, but the frequency ones are often higher resolution, meaning they uh, uh, can differentiate two very similar things with yeah. more, uh, yeah, with a great greater level of precision than 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 you could maybe necessarily do with a TOF. Although both methods can be quite high resolution, depending on how much engineering you put into the the instrument. Okay. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I thought I think that is a good answer. So it's essentially there are multiple methods, and I'm sure there so there's research essentially into all of them as far as you know different ways to measure the different variety of molecule or or uh, or ion that you have uh, that you're trying to measure, and they're all quite quite different from each other. Right. So for example, here at Berkeley, we have a mass spectrometry facility. There's about seven or eight different mass spectrometers in there, each that have kind of their own little forte, the thing that they're best at. And so somebody, you know, it's a, it's actually a user facility, so a lot of the bio people, you know, submit samples and say, I want to characterize this. And some of the, the staff there, who of course we have a working relationship with as well because they're fellow mass spectrometer people, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we'll take that and be like, okay, it's this, this kind of small molecule, this is probably the best way to get your, your, the answer that you're looking for, or oh, this is some big protein. Okay, we should probably use this instrument. That it's better suited to that kind of analysis. And so, mass spectrometry is, you know, it's one field, but it's, you know, uh, it's many different, field. many different yeah. techniques within it. Got it. Cool. Uh, Matt or Tim, do you have anything for Connor or Dr. Harper, depending <laughs> on how you're related to him? Uh, here's one question. Um, what does it look like? So, and what I mean is when you have something you want to measure, like, so do you get like a jar of it and you scoop some out, you put it in something <laughs> like describe that whole process and, and what it actually looks like? Sure, sure. So, uh, as always, it, it depends. But um, if it's some small molecule, um, you know, you might, you know, just take a syringe full of it if it's a, you know, liquid or dissolved in liquid as it often is the case and you'll, you know, uh, inject it into the, the front end of your, your instrument, if you will, the tiny hole. <laughs> um, and, uh, go that way. Um, for bigger molecules, and this is actually, you know, I mentioned a Nobel Prize one in mass spec. Uh, back in the day, what the guy named by the name of John Fenn won the Nobel Prize for is that he pioneered this method called electrospray, which sounds pretty cool, and it is pretty cool, um, where he takes a solution that has the thing he wants to look at, so some sometimes big old heavy molecules, proteins, uh, you know, they're made up of thousands, tens of thousands of atoms, right? Things that don't like to be a gas, right? I mean, things that are really heavy don't like to, to float around in the air, but ultimately in mass spectrometry, everything we measure is in, in, in a gas, a gas phase. Uh, so uh, what he did was he put them in uh, just, you know, a 
little thin capillary, little tiny tube. Um, he put a big old electric field between that capillary and the front end of his instrument. And what happened was uh, what's called electrospray. The, there's a balance between surface tension of water, which you've seen before, right? How water beads up on surfaces, right? Makes little droplets mm-hmm. versus this pull of this electric field. And so what it does is it pulls the droplet into this little point and makes really, really tiny, tiny droplets that still have the the thing you're interested in inside. And then those droplets, as they fly through the air and get hot through, you know, either intentional heating or just running into background gas, um, eventually all that water evaporates off and suddenly you're left with the thing you wanted left behind um, in the gas. And then you can measure it in your mass spectrometer. And so because... Um, before this invention, this electrospray spray um, by Fenn in 1990, the biggest thing people could measure were just little small hydrocarbons, no more than a thousand molecular weight. But thanks to electrospray, spray, now we can get things into the gas phase that weigh hundreds of millions of, of molecular mass units, or of atomic mass units, excuse me. Wow. Um, and so that's the technique I use a lot, obviously, because I'm working with big, big molecules. Um, so I have little capillaries that I fill with just a few, you know, you've heard of milliliters. I use microliters of sample um, and then spray that into the, the tiny hole in the front of my instrument. And then goes from there, measure the ions. Cool. cool. So, did, so did that answer your question, Tim? There's, there's even more methods. I mean, like I said, mass spectrometry is a conglomerate of a lot of different both ionization techniques, analyzer techniques, and detecting detection techniques. Those are kind of the three key pieces of a mass spectrometer. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, that that helps. Nice. All right. Well, Matt, anything before we uh, we sign off here? Uh, yeah, just kind of a question for for all of our audience who are now just dying to get into the field of mass spectrometry. Can you give some recommendations on where to start? What subjects uh, would be especially relevant to learn about to lead into that field? Sure. So, I mean, at its core, mass spectrometry has the most applications in, in chemistry, and that's the direction I have obviously come come into it. Um, uh, because chemistry is, of course, the study of molecules. Um, you know, we let the physicists worry about atoms, and generally we let the biologists work, worry about, you know, collections of molecules that are so big that they start to think. Um, <laughs> and everything in between is chemistry. And that's where mass spectrometry is also its most uh, useful. And so, uh, you know, I, I first heard of and was introduced to mass spectrometry as a you know, second year chemistry chemistry student at the university. Um, but um, you can certainly come at it from different angles too. Certainly if you go into molecular biology or biochemistry or these kind of allied fields with chemistry, um, mass spectrometry will be something you are certain to come across without a doubt. So. Are there specialized computer programs that do some of the analysis or, or do particular pattern detection that uh, oh. that are being used? 
Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, so I, I I know I talked about earlier about um, uh, measurements being so sensitive that you know they can measure the difference in an electron. Most of the time we don't bother to go that far, but uh, you know, it's a not necessarily I guess a well-known fact, but it is a fundamental fact that protons and neutrons also don't weigh the same amount. Um, they have a slightly different mass. And what we can do with that information is, if I measure the mass of some compound, especially if it's relatively small, you know, let's say less than 100 atoms, um, by measuring the exact mass, that's a you know, very uh, particular term there, um, I can tell you what your the composition of that that uh, that uh, molecule is in terms of its elements. You know, I can say, oh, that has 50 carbons, tw 12 oxygens, and you know, 200 hydrogens. I can just tell you that. Um, of course, as things get big, that becomes now impossible because there's so many different combinations of atoms and elements that uh, it gets too hard. But for small stuff, you know, yeah, and and to come back to your question, then, there's softwares that have all these exact masses and um, run the, through these algorithms and say, hey, that molecule that you're seeing there, uh, it's most likely got this many carbons, this many hydrogens, this many oxygens. And that means it probably is, and then it you know, okay. feeds you out a couple of candidate structures right. that you can then use to, you know, if you're, for example, my brother, you know, an organic chemist, he goes, oh, good, mass spec says I made the thing I was intending to make. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Now I can, you know, it's in, and it's a pure too. There's nothing else in there, so I can take it to my clinical trial or whatever. Okay. And so if you were, I were your other brother, I could write the program that did that. Uh, or if you were another analytical chemist that just worked with that kind of mass spectrometer. If you were my brother, you'd be like, oh, mass spectrometer? That's a magic machine. <laughs> <laughs> Put sample in, get answer. <laughs> Right. So, but yes, yes. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, he would be familiar with interpreting some amount of the mass spec results, and okay. and people adjacent to him would would write up these programs or or libraries. Right. You could just measure a million things that you know what they are, and then yep. whenever they pop up again, um, you know, like my airport example. Right. They, there's yep. just a, a program that has a library of things that says, oh, um, if this shows up and too big of an abundance, you know, arrest that guy. Um, mm. That's cocaine, or that's you know, right, uh, right. you know, C4. Like, watch out. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you, yeah, I mean, to the point you can you could even come at mass spectrometry from a computer science background, as long as you had also double majored in chemistry. Uh, it, certainly, the chemistry background would would be helpful. And you know, just <laughs> in my own project, honestly, I've had to take up computer science to a, a pretty significant degree because. Sure. You know, I want to make this measurement, but I, this home-built instrument exists, right? It gives me a signal. You know, what do I do with that signal? Well, right. I've got to do a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, computational work on that because I'm, you know, acquiring it some, you know, five million points per second or whatever. Right. And I need to now run some complex analysis. And I just so I had to write up my own uh, set of, I guess, I won't go so far to call them as... Uh, you know, programs, but scripts, anyways. Sure. That that work through all that and then pop out the answers that are actually you know meaningful and relevant to me instead of yeah. just the raw raw signal. So. Nice. Great.
Well, thank you, Dr. Connor Harper, for uh, <laughs> got to hit the doctor okay. a bunch of times here. I mean, this is like free, uh, you know, credential <laughs> hour. Like, uh, well, uh, but yeah, so thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for yeah, explaining mass spectrometry. That's something that I'm sure that uh, I would. Uh, well, I can tell you beforehand, I knew uh, precious little about it. So, um, and I only knew slightly more than Tim did. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't go and insult yourself now. Well, thanks for having me. I hope I didn't, uh, you know, go go too overboard and kept it to the the proper, you know, for the for the layman. I I, I am something that I enjoy immensely, and so I uh, it's oh, not, it not too hard for me to get carried away. <laughs> I think it was great, and we'll have our users rate your podcast versus your brother's, which uh, and uh, get, get a vote going here. And then I'm sure you guys can have some type of a family, you know, uh, um, feud going. Yes, yes, as, as always, as always. <laughs> you know, okay, well. What? And oh, uh, be, before we sign off, just a, a quick promotion for all of our listeners. Uh, we are we're now hosting a mass spectrometry limerick contest. So send your submissions in. The winner gets their name inscribed on the uh, the new mass spectrometer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, go for it. I'm I'm, I'm game. You know, <laughs> send a little note to my engineer. Could you you know, you know laser engrave <laughs> this random person's name on on the bottom of my vacuum chamber? No of course. <laughs> He's a pretty cool guy. He'd probably do it. So. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, join us back again next time for our next episode of Learn From Life.